0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. I have some amazing women joining me on the show today. As uh, as this is airing, we are in the midst of Royal Alaska and the spectacle that is going on over there. Our attention turned across the pond, if we are Americans, that is. If you're in Europe, hopefully you're able to be there. I know a limited number of people on track. I myself have never had the opportunity to go to Royal Alaska, but it certainly is a bucket list item. So we we'll be talking a little bit about that. And then with just one more two-year-old sale on the calendar this year, we'll wrap up the two-year-old sales season a little bit, look back on some of the takeaways from that, how the market has performed this year, especially with all of the craziness of 2020, with a lot of the sales being rescheduled or canceled, both with two-year-olds, yearling sales, whatever they may be, back last year. So some normalcy on the calendar, some normalcy as far as being back at the racetrack, and restrictions being lifted. I'm looking forward to recapping all of that action and looking ahead to what is still to come. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, glad to have you with me. Very happy to be joined now by my friend, Brittany Urton, who has had a lot of experience with Royal Ascot and covering the event, being there, the pageantry of the whole thing. And Brittany, I'm so happy to have you on the show today for a little bit of an inside look.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I can't tell you how much I miss being there. It is easily one of my favorite weeks of racing in the year. And I have not been there for a couple of years, obviously, considering Mm -hmm. the pandemic. So sitting at home, watching it, enjoying it, but definitely not the same as being on site.
0: What was your first year going there like? I mean, did it kind of take your breath away? Did it live up to the expectations? Because I think, especially us as Americans in following the the week of racing, it's like we're all so captured and enchanted by the whole the whole being of it, so to speak.
1: So me, like many of other people out there, I spent so many years watching it on TV. And as you said, you're just captivated by the fashion, the racing, obviously the royal family being there. So when I went for the first time, it was actually with a group of friends that have nothing to do with racing, but we were in England spending a couple of days out there and thought this is absolutely something we have to do. So We applied for Royal Enclosure tickets. We got there. We got all dressed up. My friends didn't understand why they had to have a fascinator that was four inches (laughs) by four inches. They were not fans of that, but we had an absolute blast. It was unlike anything I'd ever experienced it before. When asked this question, the closest event I think we have stateside would be the Breeders' Cup, Mm -hmm. but- We don't have a royal family. So obviously that is just a completely different experience in and of itself. I also noticed they don't root very loud there. So when Hmm. I had a wager on a horse and I was rooting for the horse, I probably looked like a crazy person. So toned that down (laughs) sense.
0: I, I like that though. I respect that. That's all part of the fun too. Um but tell me a little bit about it.
1: It's not really Yeah, it's
0: wild. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I I'd be right there with you. Um but tell me about the racing and, and obviously there's A different course format than what we're used to here in the US. So when you started covering the event, was that something that you needed to adapt to and and horses that might be able to maybe handle that a little bit better? And obviously some of the European form that we, we may not be so familiar with in watching races daily here.
1: It's absolutely an adjustment. And when I was there covering for either racing TV or NBC, I definitely leaned on my English counterparts to help me with that because unlike in the States where we typically have very firm ground, um, the softest we'll see the ground is maybe yielding on the East Coast. So the weather absolutely plays a part into the ground and how soft it's going to be much softer than anything we see stateside. So that was one thing to get adjusted to the course configuration, very different than what we see stateside. Kentucky downs is probably the closest to a European track with its undulating Mm -hmm. course, (laughs) but the fact that they have straightaways there, meaning obviously no turns, we don't have that in the States. And so Say you have a horse that would be very good stateside going six furlongs around one bend. They might not like the straight six furlongs at Royal Ascot. It might be too tough for them. You might want a horse that would be able to go a mile stateside turning back in distance to a six furlong at Royal Ascot. Mm -hmm. So the configuration aspect, how much the weather really affects the course, all of those things came into play when working it. And it was an adjustment, but I think you can attest to this as well. Um, it's a challenge and deciding to learn <laughs> about different countries and different racing and how they go about things.
0: It really does fascinate me in in kind of having a chance to cover stateside some of the European races too, how forthcoming a lot of the connections are. Um, I think a little bit different sometimes than when we interview them here in the U.S. Was that something that you found when you were able to speak to connections about the course, about the going, or about just training in general leading up to it?
1: Absolutely. And I'm not quite sure stateside why it is sometimes pulling (laughs) teeth to get real honest answers from the trainers, but over there, they are very upfront, I believe about their chances, especially when it comes to how the ground is. Um, for instance, John Gosden, who mm-hmm. incredibly intimidates me, <laughs> um, <laughs> he but is. he will be, as you mentioned, very forthcoming in his answers about how his horses are doing. Say Palace Pier, who's the highest rated horse in the world right now, just one at Royal Alaska, you could tell that he was not overwhelmed by his victory. And he was very upfront about the fact that this horse, when he gets to the lead, waits on other horses. And I found that to be a very interesting statement coming from a man that's trained champions around the mm-hmm. world, including stateside, um, his honest assessment of this horse who was ranked highest in the world and his performance on the day. So I think that you, in terms of interviewing people overseas, can get a little bit more, I would say, into different aspects of the horse with them rather than stateside. Mm -hmm. I think we do stray away from perhaps those really tough questions because we don't often get the (laughs) honest answers.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting watching that too and just kind of what we're used to in general. Well, we do have, of course, though always a pretty good American contingent that we get to root for, often headed by Wesley Ward, who once again has several opportunities this year, including Twilight Gleaming. She was so impressive when I saw her Breaker Maiden at Belmont, and, and looking forward to seeing her. What's that like being at Royal Alaska and seeing the Americans and and how they often maybe transfer some of that form to the that European racecourse?
1: I would relate seeing the Americans run and win at Royal Alaska is like cheering on Team USA in the Olympics. That's (laughs) what it feels like, though we are supposed to be unbiased as we're watching and covering these races. There is a sense of pride seeing an American do well. And Wesley Ward has been the true pioneer in not only taking horses over, Mm -hmm. but taking horses over and winning. I spoke to him last week, and he said he's really felt that The more he goes over, the more he learns and he understands Mm -hmm. what it takes to win at Royal Ascot. That makes sense. He's had 11 winners. He's been going over for quite some time. He said the quality of horse he's brought over has changed. He doesn't send one unless he believes they can win. So I think Mm -hmm. that says a lot about who he's bringing over. You don't know how these horses can handle that travel until they get there, of course. But as you know, especially with young horses, some tout themselves with a more mentally mature mind than others. So that, I would believe, is something Wesley really looks for. And of course, he's known for how quick they break from the starting gate. Uh, That is the edge, I believe, he feels an American has when going over, is maybe the race is over the moment they open up from the starting Mm -hmm. gate. Weather, of course, um, is a big thing. Go ahead. <laughs> right.
0: For sure. There's so many other variables that go into it. Do you think that that mental aspect, which is it's important at any level of horse racing, do you think that that's a bigger deal heading over versus maybe a, a certain type of horse? Is that something that you'd be looking for a little bit more, maybe just ones that are a little bit more mature, especially when we're looking at those two-year-olds?
1: I would say so because there are so many adjustments that they're making when flying over. They Mm -hmm. do things in Europe so different than we do things in America. Even from their training regimen to the surroundings, they're at a yard rather than in a barn and going to a track with hundreds of other horses around. Sometimes you have to cross a busy street with cars to get to the race course to train. So there's so many things these young horses must adapt to. And if you don't have a mentally mature horse, I think they might lose their mind before even entering the starting gate. Um, That being said, he's had an edge with the quick horses. And Mm -hmm. we know that pedigree plays into a lot of the ground and how these horses are going to handle it. But first and foremost, I would say for Americans going over quick with a strong mental mind.
0: What was something that surprised you most, whether it was being there at Royal Alaska or covering it? Was there something that really stood out and made you say, wow?
1: How much everyone there truly appreciates the racing. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to necessarily say that that's a surprise, but mm-hmm. it seems like on such a big day when there's so much else going on in terms of the party and the fashion and yeah. the pageantry, etc., it seems that even general fans who may not follow racing all the time have a true appreciation for the sport. And I love that. And a true appreciation for the tradition of the Royal Meeting.
0: Yeah, I love hearing that too. It it is something that I think we can at sometimes on those big days see get lost a little bit or the reason why we're there at the core of it. But the fashion is fun too. And I have to ask you of about course. that as well. <laughs> of course. It's so much fun. I mean, tell me about picking out things to cover races at Royal Alaska and, and just kind of the mindset. And you mentioned some of the rules that are in play there too.
1: Acacia, I hate to admit this, but it was such a challenge for me. (laughs) It was so tough to try and plan out five outfits with five different headpieces all coming from the States. So my first thought is how am I going to get everything there? Yeah. (laughs) My second thought is will they uh, fit into the requirements for the Royal Enclosure? So They've changed over the years, but mostly it's the dress needs to at least hit your knee. The sleeves need to be at least an inch thick. You must wear a hat, and your hat needs to be at least four inches in diameter. Um, and your shoes have to be closed-toed. So all of these factors go into putting together an outfit. And as you know, wearing hats and well headbands now aren't mm-hmm. really big in the States. It's obviously... Something you see a lot more of in Europe as well as Australia. So contacting milliners in England to try and borrow hats or loan hats from them to match the outfits, it was stressful, girl. It was real stressful. (laughs)
0: I can imagine. That's also, I'm going to say why I asked you because uh, it's a lot. You have to plan everything out too. I will say guys often have it a little bit easier, but I, I do love the morning suit and top hat look as well, though I don't envy them when it's particularly hot on that week.
1: No, I don't either. But I think men can rock the top hat. I wouldn't mind if something along those lines was brought stateside. I would be very okay with it.
0: (laughs) I love it. I love it. I think it's very fun. And like you said, it's so much of the event and the excitement Mm -hmm. and the history of it. When you started covering um, the event, was reading up on some of the history and, and some of the traditions and things like that, something that was part of the preparation for you?
1: Absolutely, especially when I would join Nick Luck for the coverage of the royal (laughs) procession. And I've always been fascinated by the royal family and just tradition in general. So hearing about different things that would transpire prior to the royal procession, say they would have tea and lunch at Windsor Castle with Her Majesty, Or in her younger days, she would ride out over the course with a prince from another country to give him the feel of race day. Um, Mm -hmm. The tradition of wagering on her color even is fun and exciting. There are so many over the years. And that's why I think today, or I should say this week, is um, historical for the fact that she did not attend. For the mm-hmm. first time in I believe 68 years, she did not attend the first day of Royal Alaska, and that due much in part to the pandemic. But this is very much so a part of her life. She loves horses. She loves racing. She's so involved. Um, there is nothing better than seeing her at the race course when she would get out of the carriage and keep an eye on each of her horses. That were pr- pulling the carriages along for the procession. You knew that she knew everything about them, and it's mm-hmm. her love for the sport that I find to be the most captivating about the royal meeting. Is she? It's not a facade. She loves it. She really does.
0: Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago when we got to see a horse owned by the queen, I I just love looking up and you see owner and just says the queen and just a (laughs) kind of a mic drop type of moment. But you could see the pride in that as well and how the whole country was so excited about it and everybody there. And like you said, cheering on the Americans was great. But I feel like that's a really special moment too in just seeing um, the appreciation once again.
1: Absolutely. And it's something that started with her a love that began at a very young age. There are still photos of her at age 90, 91, getting aboard a horse. So it's a passion that I can only hope she is passed down to some of her children or grandchildren, because the reason I think it's captivated us Americans is because of her love for it and her involvement in it. So we can only hope for a Royal Ascot winner for Her Majesty.
0: Absolutely. Well, for you, having covered the event and been there um, as a fan, is there a certain race or a certain winner over the years that has been really memorable for you, maybe your favorite race that you've gotten to experience live at Royal Ascot?
1: I think it has to be the Gold Cup. It's on Ladies' Day. It's the biggest day of the meeting. Her Majesty the Queen won the Gold Cup one year with her horse named Estimate. But I've been lucky enough to be there twice when Stradivarius has won. And he is going for a record-tying victory in the Gold Cup with the great Yates. And Frankie de I'll never forget this. It was absolutely pouring down rain. Frankie Dettori coming into the enclosure, hyping up the crowd after Stradivarius had won again, doing his flying dismount. And he had had himself just an unbelievable week. But it was that race with that horse, with the rain coming down and the sheer (laughs) joy that everybody surrounding the parade ring and the winner's enclosure just felt in that moment. It gave you chills almost, because as I said before, whether you're a longtime racing fan or a new racing fan, you knew they appreciated what this horse had done.
0: Such an amazing animal is Stradivarius. I'm such a huge fan uh, in, in following his career. Well, for this year, I know you'll be watching from home as will I, but is there any particular runner you're really looking forward to seeing this week?
1: Well, hopefully a Wesley (laughs) Ward. Campanelli, I'm really looking forward to seeing her, of course, for Stone Street. She was victorious last year. Uh, Stradivarius, of course, and the comeback of love because all we need is love.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Absolutely agree. Well, Brittany, it was so fun hearing about some of your favorite memories from the week, and I really appreciate your time today. And I hope we get to run into one another at a racetrack sometime soon.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. It's been far too long that you and I have hung yes. out. Maybe one of these days we can cover rural Alaska together.
0: <laughs> that would be wonderful, Brittany. Thank you. Very happy to be joined now by Nicole Russo from the Daily Racing Forum. And Nicole, uh, you are, I know, one who is really in tune with everything happening with the sales, breeding. You are, I think, the perfect fit to join me on this show as we just recently wrapped up the OBS June sale. Thanks so much for coming on.
2: Thank you for having me. Good morning.
0: Good morning as we're filming or recording this, I should say, nice and early before I have to drive down to Belmont. Nicole, nice enough to uh, come on with me. But Nicole has mentioned the OBS June sale just wrapped up. We have one more two-year-old sale in the season coming up the end of the month with the Santa Anita sale. Obviously, we've seen such an improve in the season from last year to this year, of course, with the pandemic in twenty twenty. What are some of the things, general trends that you've noticed as far as the two year old sales season is
1: concerned?
2: Well, as you've said, we've we've really come back strong uh, from twenty twenty where you know the the pandemic forced a number of sales to be canceled or postponed, and the surviving sales posted some depressed figures. Um, You know, a lot of people last year said, you know, with the with the racing calendar and a lot of the stakes and things kind of up in the air with just the general economic uncertainty, people weren't really, you know, champing at the bit to go out and buy these horses last year, because even if they bought them, there was the question of, you know, where are we going to run them? What's sort of the immediate future look like Uh, Mm -hmm. this year with? You know, fortunately, we're, we're sort of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel with vaccines and some of the pandemic restrictions being lifted. And there's really been a lot more market enthusiasm this year. Um, and, you know, you would expect the figures to come back and post big gains over 2020. But moreover, what we're seeing is a lot of the sales actually posting uh, figures that compared well uh, to the sales prior to 2020 and even some record figures. Um you know, so this season is not only representing a return to the normal calendar, you know, we've seen that market enthusiasm. Uh, OBS's March and April sales both posted double-digit year-to-year gains in the average price. The April sale recorded a record gross. June sale, just, which we just wrapped up, as you mentioned, uh, recorded uh, a record gross, a record average, and a record-tying median. And meanwhile, you know, phasing hipton with their two-year-old sales, uh, the Gulfstream sale finished with strong figures, and their Mid Atlantic sale in May posted record figures across the board. So, um, I think it is a little bit of a polarized marketplace. I think everybody is on sort of the horses that tick all the boxes, and if you you know have one that's lacking in one area, you know the the middle to lower markets are a little bit more difficult. But I I really do uh, like the market enthusiasm that we've seen. And I think that that bodes well, you know, coming up on the yearling sale season, because, you know, you've got the mm-hmm. pin hookers who have done well this season who are going to be flushed and kind of looking to restock for, for next year. So all of these different sale seasons really, you know, feed into each other in a continual cycle.
0: Excited to see what the yearling sales do offer coming up soon. And you brought up such a great point about the pin hookers who've done well and will be able to kind of put that back in. And, and I think that's the racing industry in general. And that one section of it has to work for the rest of it to be successful as well. Um, we saw a practical joke filly Philly be the sales topper at OBS June for 475000 And typically, we see kind of some of those numbers more in March and April. April. What were some of your takeaways from um, that particular sale? And was that just kind of a reflection of the season overall?
2: Yeah, I think so. Um, We really have seen, you know, Practical Joke, obviously, you know, the top of the leaderboard there. We Mm -hmm. really have seen, you know, some young stallions, you know, where people are really uh, competing for them and really supporting them. And, you know, Practical Joke is certainly one of them. I think there's not a hotter sire line in America right now with, you know, Into Mischief, uh, your two-time reigning leading sire, again, currently leading the general sire list by earnings. Um, And, you know, he made such a great start to stud with Golden Sense, who's been a young leading Mm -hmm. sire. And Practical Joke, I think, you know, for the last several years, as we've seen his first weanlings, first yearlings, uh, you know, he's really one that people have looked at as kind of one of the heirs to Into Mischief. Uh, as a multiple grade one winning two year old himself, I think there was always going to be some market enthusiasm for him. He's off the mark with a couple of winners, and you know, mm-hmm. he's performed well this two year old sales season with this Philly who led OBS June being his latest example.
0: When you go into covering a sales season, whether it's the yearlings or the two year olds, I'm sure there's Obviously, research that goes into ahead of time, and you mention a horse like practical joke who's the son of an established stallion, like into mischief. Are those some of the things that you're kind of looking for a little bit more or maybe a bit more intrigued by that offspring, those those lines continuing on?
2: Yeah, and you know, I really do love um when we you know each year we get the new class of stallions and it's sort of figuring out, you know how how the market might respond to them. Um, you know, of course, you've seen the horses as race horses. You look at trends like how their sire is performing. And then you get the little hints, you know, with how their first weanlings sell, their first yearlings sell, especially if, you know, the yearling to two-year-old pin hookers are buying progeny mm-hmm. by a specific first crop stallion. They're saying, hey, I think this horse is going to hit next year. Um, you know, and then you, then you get, you know, you start doing a little bit of research with the second crop sires and, okay, how was this horse? last year as a freshman how does his second crop look compared to his first how is the market going to respond now i think that's a trend we've seen this year with uh nyquist who had the most mm-hmm. expensive two-year-old of the season uh you know the 2.6 million uh phasing gulfstream sale hopper purchased by the coolmore group uh you know nyquist obviously followed in the mold of his sire uncle mo by being last year's leading freshman sire you saw the market really respond this year with his second crop saying, Hey, Mm -hmm. we think that horse is going to have continued success.
0: Always fun to follow those and see the offspring of uh, horses that you really enjoyed watching on the racetrack. What about with female families too, when you're preparing, are you kind of zeroed in on some of those big pedigrees that look like they may sell well, you know, some great race mares that have their first foals on the ground, for
2: instance? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's definitely something when you, you know, flip through a catalog, uh, you know, you're, you're looking for the, you're looking for the black type, um, you know, you're, you're looking for, you know, just sort of, you know, if that class is going to go through, uh, you know, certainly, mm-hmm. you know, if, if there's a race mayor, you recognize if you look at a page and you see hey, this horse, you know, his first three dams have all produced stakes horses, that's a pretty consistent record of success. If you look at a horse and you're like, wow, this mare's," you know, first two starters, both one is two-year-olds, this horse might really light up in the juvenile sales ring. Um, You know, certainly that's something you look at. And if, you know, especially with these young sires, if you say, hey, you know, this is the stallion's first crop, but the mare was bred to the stallion sire and produced a winner that's, you know, a cross that, you know, mm-hmm. clearly works. So definitely, um, you know, it's, it's 50-50. I'm always looking at the female families and how they perform.
0: Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get involved in racing? How did you come uh, to your current position and being so involved in the sales and, and breeding with the Daily Racing Form?
2: <laughs> um, well, I always knew I fell in love with racing at a young age um you know I I read I read everything and I read a lot of great Mm -hmm. novels when I was younger like you know the the Black Stallion um Mm -hmm. and Marguerite Henry's books um you know about black gold and some other racehorses and I know them well (laughs) yes absolutely and I really I fell in love with the sport through those and started following racing and always knew I wanted to work in racing um and as I mentioned, you know, I I read everything. I love to write. I love research. Uh, so it sort of led me to combining, you know, racing and writing and journalism as kind of a natural fit. Um, so I majored in journalism in college uh, and worked in the sports department of a couple of newspapers um, in my hometown of Rochester, New York, and then in Saratoga um, before moving to Kentucky about nine years ago now, um, Mm. to work for the, uh, now shuttered thoroughbred times and then for daily racing form.
0: And it's amazing where horses can take you, isn't it? And one of the things you touched on is the research and that's one of the things that I love most, even when just, you know, handicapping, whether it's dual races or maiden races, how deeply you can go into the families and into the pedigrees. Is that something that you enjoy as well? And tell me a little bit about your process and looking up those pedigrees.
2: Yeah, you know, I just I I really do love, you know, the research aspect of mm-hmm. it and, you know, sort of digging back um, you know, just through that history and thinking about, you know, all the people that have been involved in you know, sort of building a horse and building a family over the years. Um, had a lot of fun this year with uh Cotto River, actually, who was a mm-hmm. horse on the you know Kentucky Derby trail and a an act, currently active three-year-old. Um, you know, just you, you know, you start looking at a horse and going like, wow, you know, his uh, mother was a stakes winner, and look, her mother produced a couple of stakes winners, and. You know, the next thing you know, you're way down the rabbit hole and you're going like, <laughs> wow, this family goes back, you know, producing stakes winners all the way, you know, to the early 1900s, nine generations. So it's really just amazing when you start digging into things and kind of looking at different, uh, you know, eras of the breed and, you know, how things have changed and not changed. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 really fun when you sort of like let let a horse kind of take you down that path through history.
0: I love going down that rabbit hole too. Like I said, looking up those generations—it's sometimes it's just incredible what you can kind of stumble upon, and the siblings, and maybe then you end up watching videos of their races and things like that too. Um, and I always recommend that for people that are kind of newer into the sport is when you start to get kind of acquainted with the family, it almost makes you feel like associated with that horse. And when you're covering these sales, you kind of. Continue and follow some of the ones that stand out to you when they make it to the racetrack.
2: Yeah, a lot of times I do, um, especially the sale toppers, or you know, if there's, you know, if I'm looking in the later books and there's progeny of, you know, maybe kind of a let more under the radar stallion. I think is interested is interesting. I like to keep an eye on them. Um, but you know, you you talked to you you mentioned you know people doing a little more looking at the families and almost feeling a little more invested, mm-hmm. and that's. Um, That's really one thing I love about covering the sales is, you know, you see these horses on the racetrack and then you see, you know, their their progeny and you, you know, you see similar qualities coming through in horses. And, um, you know, so working in bloodstock and sales, it really, um, you know, I, I would definitely recommend, you know, to people who are getting involved with the sport, like you said, you know, to kind of it might seem sort of like a whole separate arena, but I feel like if you really pay attention to it. It'll really enhance your, your knowledge of and enjoyment of the, the sport because you'll really get to see, um you know, a lot more of these horses as individuals and things you start to recognize mm-hmm. about different horses and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I love hearing that too. And that's kind of one of my goals with this show as well. And I'm sure you've had this experience with being somebody that does cover the sales. It almost is like another entity within the world of horse racing. You know, even some people that are involved in the industry don't really know or understand what happens at the sales. Um, what kind of advice would you give to people who are maybe coming to the sales or looking at a sales book for one of the first times?
2: Oh, gosh. Um, I mean it's you you really just have to sort of sit there and take it in and kind of uh <laughs> sink into the rhythm of it a little bit because yeah, yeah you know it's it's really fast paced it's kind of you know you you watch you know these these companies and their sales staff and how they get the horses in and out of the ring and they spot the bids and it's really you know just very well organized chaos um you know it's it's incredible even to me who watches all these sales just sort of sitting there and you know, watching the routine and watching the process. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I would say if you go to your first sale and you're sort of, I have no idea what's going on, um, that's, you know, normal. And, you know, you, you just sort of sit there and kind of get into the rhythm of it. And then once you, once you're used to it, it, it'll be almost like it slows down for you and you can start going, okay, Mm -hmm. you know, that this is what's happening. Uh, this horse is one that's lighting up the bid board, maybe this is why, you know, and you start you start processing a little more as you get used to it.
0: I think that's good advice. As we'll hopefully have the party atmosphere back this summer at the Saratoga Yearling Sale, where I think that's probably more than any other sale, where you get um, some first timers coming too. Yeah. But there, there really is that excitement, that buzz about it, and and that's really a sale, right, that has turned into an event on the calendar.
2: It is. I think that's one of the sales where, you know, I mean, it's, it's held during the race week. People come, mm-hmm. you know, across the street from, from the track or people who are in town for the summer, uh, you know, they, they have sort of the cocktail party going out back that mm-hmm. one is very much, you know, sort of a CNBC. And then, I mean, you know, that's, that's a sale with such high quality horses. I mean, that's, that's really a, it, it's just, it's a very exciting sale and I'm going to be very excited, uh, you know, to have it back this summer. Uh, mm-hmm. I think, you know, as I said, this yearling sales season really has the potential to be a strong one with what we've seen in the two-year-old market. And, you know, with an exciting class of first-year sires, we're going to see the first yearlings buy another triple crown winner in Justify coming up yeah. this year. Um, you know, we'll have, you know, sort of spectators and a lot more people back at the sales. I really do think it's going to be an exciting season coming up.
0: I wanted to ask you about um, your takeaways with some of the state bed, state bread programs as they've gotten to uh, talk on this show about New York breads and Maryland breads. Um, tell me a little bit about what you've noticed as far as these state bread programs growing and how that may influence the sales and how those particular horses are perhaps sought after.
2: Absolutely. Um, you know, you, you mentioned New York and I mean, you know, the, the New York breads are one where they have their own basic tipped in sale a couple of days after the selected sale mm-hmm. up in New York. And what we've really seen over the years is with the New York bred, uh, program and incentives that New York yearling sale has gone from being, you know, sort of a regional sale where you would get the local horsemen shopping at it to, you know, national level programs. Like I believe the last time the sale was held in person in 2019, um, you know, Larry Best spent a sale record price for the sale topper last year, you know, for his national level program. So what we've really seen with the New York bread program and reflected in the sales is that it's not just sort of the local owners anymore. It's, you know, people the country over are realizing that, you know, it pays to own a a New York bread. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think you've seen that in some of the other sales as well, particularly, you know, the the phasic Tipton in mid sale where you get so many state breads, um you know maryland breds and from the surrounding states like pennsylvania new york mm-hmm. other jurisdictions in that sale um you know the more the more successful state bred programs you're seeing people realize you know hey they're not just local horses they can be national level competitive horses
0: it was kind of cool to see a horse, uh, last year, like tis the law, New York bred winning the Belmont and Travers. And, um, I always like that too, when you see some horses that are from those, maybe smaller state bred programs being successful in some of the big races. Um, but I have to ask you too, uh, about your involvement with OTTBs. I know that you show your off track thoroughbred and a big proponent of aftercare, which as everybody knows is a huge part of my life. So, um, tell us a little bit about, uh, competing with your OTTB?
2: Yeah, well, it's, um, you know, I, I do own an off-the-track thoroughbred. Uh, his name is One Brave Warrior, and we show locally here, uh, you know, in on the Lexington, Kentucky circuit in dressage. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a New Vocations graduate uh, who was, they're, they're a wonderful program. They really place horses with the right people. And I have to give a shout out too, to his breeder, uh, Stone Street Farm they, you know, really support new vocations, really mm-hmm. track their uh, their graduates, you know, as they're coming off the track and making sure they get rehabbed and wind up in second careers. Uh, you know, Stone Street, they really walk the walk, you know, and mm-hmm. don't just talk the talk when it comes to aftercare, um, you know, as do a number of other farms. But, you know, War- mm-hmm. Warrior in particular was bred by Stone Street. Um, he, he is he's an Indian Charlie um, and he's just. You know, he's, he's really, he's really wonderful. And, um, gosh, I could, I could tell you about him for, you know, another hour here. Um, but I, you know, I've always loved, um, you know, watching thoroughbreds come off the track and go on to second careers because, you know, that, that athleticism and that heart mm-hmm. that they have, you know, can really serve them well and in, in so many other disciplines, um, and I, I see that on the day-to-day at, um, you know, I board Warrior at Greystone Stable in uh, Georgetown, Kentucky, and the majority of our horses in the barn are actually off-the-track thoroughbreds who event mm. and compete in dressage and compete in hunter-jumpers. Um, we even have one Western rider with her thoroughbred in the barn. Uh They're wow. so just, you know, sort of the sky is the limit for these horses.
0: I love hearing that um, too. As I've mentioned this story a couple of times, but back in 2010, when I started really getting involved in aftercare and started um, our organization, Racing for Home, we had a hard time finding a barn that would accept a thoroughbred off the track. You know, they had kind of fallen out of fashion a little bit in the the show world, and there were some misconceptions. So it's amazing to see how much more they're being embraced in so many different disciplines off the track and. Um, um, tell me a little bit for you, just some of the things that you've taken away with being involved with an off-track thoroughbred.
2: Um, they will, you know, uh, the, the thoroughbreds will, you know, I mean, they, they humble you and they push you to be mm-hmm. your best. Um, I mean, it, it really, it really sounds, it, it really sounds a little cheesy, um, saying it out loud, <laughs> but I mean, you know, every day when I, when I go in there you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're opinionated horses. I mean, they have those (laughs) strong personalities and those strong spirits that, you know, serve them so well competitively on the racetrack and in other arenas. And, you know, uh, they really want you to have a, to have a partnership with them. And I think, you know, you, you go in there, um, you know, every day and you sort of go, okay, what, what does, what does he need? And what do I need from him? And where can we meet in the middle here to, to perform at our best? And they really, um, you know, for for me, for me personally, you know, being involved, you know, with these horses, uh, just, you know, sort of pushes me to step out of my comfort zone in so many ways. Um, Mm -hmm. It's, it's really, and I think anybody who, who, who loves a horse, you know, will be able to, speak to, you know, sort of that partnership, uh, you know, and sort of that experience of bonding with an animal.
0: Could not agree more. And just uh, one more question on that point, as far as us as an industry and our involvement in aftercare, and you mentioned a farm like Stone Street, who is so supportive of it. And of course, we've come a long way as an industry, but tell me a little bit about your views on the importance of our support of aftercare and making that a priority.
2: Absolutely. Um, You know, I just, I think that everybody involved with the industry needs to have it, you know, sort of on their, on their checklist of what they're doing, just because, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in whatever capacity you can, whether it's giving money or speaking about awareness or taking on a horse yourself, you know, I understand that everybody's commitment is going to be at a different level. Um, You know, even if you're just sort of, you know, I'm a fan of the sport and I'm posting on social media and I'm sharing Mm -hmm. posts, you know, from these aftercare organizations, Um, you know, but I do think everybody needs to sort of do what they can. And then at the end of the day, it it will all add up, Um, you know, because none of us in this industry at any level would be here without these horses Mm -hmm. and without this sport. And, you know, they do have, you know, a, a lifetime to live beyond this sport. And I think every single one of us is, is responsible for that.
0: Very much agree. And, um, I, I know I am one of many, many people in the industry that says horses have truly changed my life and, and given me so much, but, um, I, I hope that we get to talk aftercare in person, uh, sometime soon. Cause I know that you and I could go on for a while on that topic, but, uh, Nicole, I can't say thank you enough. It was so fun having you on today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. And yes, I, I really could talk about these horses all day. <laughs> all day. There <laughs> you
0: And that'll do it for another episode of In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. Thank you to Nicole and Brittany. Loved a little girl power on today's show as well. Um, Some fun things coming up. Just want to remind you for In the Money Media, the In the Money Media audience survey is now live. So head on over and take that survey. If you complete the survey, you'll be entered into a random drawing for a $500 wager this summer. Um, Love it. It only takes a couple of minutes to complete for all of the listeners and viewers on the In The Money media platform. We appreciate you. Hope that you take the opportunity to take that survey. Also, some notes for our friends at LTN Global, which offers innovative TV TV production services that help racetracks raise their profile, bringing all the TV tricks they've learned from other sports into horse racing. LTN is a technology and production company that is helping racetracks create and distribute content at a high quality and good value and LTN Distribution Services uh, to get some tracks seen more online and in offline spaces than ever before. Visit ltnglobal.com to learn more today. Hope that you are signed up for the In The Money Media newsletter online. You don't want to miss a thing. There is a lot more stuff still to come. And I'll catch you next time on In The Ring with Acacia Courtney. As always, if you have some ideas, some topics you're interested in, send them over to me and please feel free to share this with people that you think may enjoy thanks until next time i'm acacia courtney